Please take your Bibles if you would, if you have them, and turn with me to the book of Colossians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, if you're looking for it in the New Testament. And we are going to uh, take a brief detour from our study in the Gospel according to Luke to consider something that has to do with uh, what's going on today with regard to baptisms of a number of people. Um, If you have not been here for our study of Luke, we're learning about the temptation of Jesus and how Jesus overcame that and what that says, not only as an example for us, but also about him in particular and why we should trust in him and why he is worthy of being followed. But here this morning, what I want to do is to talk about uh, sort of the other side of the story of baptism. We're going to hear in just a few minutes from people who Uh, are telling what God has done in their lives, giving a testimony of God's grace, and they're giving the narrative account of that, how that came home to their lives. But what I want to consider here this morning is what is true objectively for everyone and anyone who puts their faith in Christ. What does it look like? What is recorded, if you will, in heaven? What is the record of someone and the position of someone, regardless of how they came to know Christ and of their testimony of conversion? And that's what we want to look at by considering the last couple of verses of the section that I want to read. Colossians 1, starting in verse 9, and then we'll read through verse 14 and consider those last two verses in particular this morning. So Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. To please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If baptism is a picture of what God has done for believers through Jesus Christ, this is the direct information. What did God do when he saved someone? And why should that make us abundantly grateful to him if we're in that position? And what does God offer to someone when he offers to save them? And what should that cause you to do if you're not in that position? If you have been saved, these are reasons to give thanks. If you have not been saved, these are reasons to run to the cross. They speak of how the Father made his people fit, qualified, he says in verse 12. For heaven, how does God qualify people or make them ready to enter into their heavenly future? It says he has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Well, fundamentally, he did so not through our good works, not through any effort of our own, not because we were wiser or stronger or smarter than anyone else, but because of his mercy toward us in Jesus Christ and because God acted toward us. This is how he qualified us. We didn't qualify ourselves. There was no standard that we could meet. There is no plan and no path to move us toward God on any terms that we could accomplish. Instead, God had to do it. And for all Christians, God has done it. And this, in verses 13 and 14, is how. 
And so Paul provides for us here two reasons either to run to the cross if you don't know Christ or to be thankful if you're a Christian because of the salvation that these actions God took toward us provides for us in Jesus Christ. So we want to talk about gratitude for God's gracious salvation and to do so by just considering two truths about God's salvation of all believers. First of all, in verse 13, believers have been rescued. Believers have been rescued. And this is what he says here, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. There's a word that's repeated in this verse that you may notice, and I want to consider it before we go any further. For he rescued who? He rescued us. He transferred us. When he says that word us, it may seem simple. It may seem like we're kind of just getting a little too precise here or being a bit too particular, but we need to consider who he is talking about when he says the word us. Now, in verses 3 through 12, Paul has already detailed the prayer that he offers for the Colossian Christians. He talks about how he gives thanks for them, and then he talks about what he prays for them going forward. He's grateful for their salvation, and he prays that they would live in the way that God wants. But now he includes himself in this group. He did say, you, you, I pray these things for you. But now Paul groups himself in with them and he says, I am included in this group that all believers are described by. He speaks of the common blessings of salvation that they all share. And so this refers not just to Paul, not just to the Colossians, but to all Christians. But at the same time, this refers not just to all Christians, but to only Christians, only Christians, he rescued us from the domain of darkness. He transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, many people who are familiar with the Bible and familiar with Christianity often assume that the things that God has done in Christ are true for all people, regardless of their response. And so they use phrases carelessly like, God our Father, or our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, when they've made no moves or taken no actions to make Jesus Christ their Lord and their Savior. They never stop to ask themselves, is he my Savior? Is he my Lord? Is God actually not just my creator, but also my spiritual father as well? They never ask themselves these questions. They just assume and they sort of go through life and drift and never consider whether the things that God says are true about believers require that they become believers. And my encouragement to you this morning, my challenge, my urging, is to not let these assumptions keep you from considering that question. Am I part of the us that he describes here? Make sure that you're in this group that he describes and not just that you take it for granted that God does these things for all people without regard to our response. But if these things are true of you, and if you are a believer, the things that he says here describe the condition of everyone who's in Christ. It says here, he rescued us. He rescued us. It has the idea of deliverance from danger, from someone's power, from an attack, or even from suffering, even sometimes from temptation. In this case, it is from being under the authority and control of what he calls the domain of darkness. The domain of darkness. Now, 
there is kind of a whole world that he is describing here. And as unbelieving people, we were held captive by the devil and by his entire system and structure of the way that he rules the world, including his demonic forces. An entire world of temptation and evil. An entire world of lies and deception. This is what described the state in which we lived outside of Christ. And so when he rescued us, that's where he's got to get us from. And so he rescued us. Believers have been rescued, first of all, out of the darkness. Out of the darkness. This idea here of domain refers to authority or power. It refers to someone who both possesses and exercises the authority of ruling. And as I said, when he uses this word, Paul, here in many other places, he's referring to demonic forces, including Satan. He refers to them as powers or authorities. Satan is strong. His demons are strong, stronger than any human authority or power. And they hold us in their domain. And largely, this goes unnoticed because not only are they invisible, but also they're very deceptive. So that the person who is under their power has no idea that that's where they are. They just think they're living their life. They think that they are autonomous. They think, I'm not going to let anybody have control over me, including God. And all the while, they fail to realize that they're under the authority of Satan. 2 Corinthians 4 says, the God of this world, the devil himself, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. They can't see. They don't know where they are. And so these hold us in our domain outside of Christ. Human authorities can hold you physically captive. They can imprison you. They can arrest you. But Satan holds you captive in your spiritual state, your very soul. Ephesians 2 verses 1 and 2 says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That spirit is the spirit that we once possessed. It is a spirit of rebellion against God. A spirit that doesn't want to do what God says. And Satan used this to keep us tied up in his domain, under his power. That domain here is referred to, he says, as the domain of darkness. An obvious contrast to what verse 12 refers to as light. The Christian's inheritance is described as bright, as lit up, as shining. This is pleasant. It's, it's used to describe God and his character. It's used to describe Jesus. And certainly there are times when darkness might be good and might be appropriate. If you're ever trying to fall asleep in the daylight, many of us find this very difficult to do. If you're ever trying to hide in the daylight, you can find it difficult to do. Uh, there are certain things that are better at night or when it's dark. But in general, we want to be able to see things. Those of you who were here a few months ago for our couple of weeks of light outages in this room can appreciate just how valuable it is to have light, to be able to see, to be able to read the Bibles that are in front of you and see the faces next to you. You know what this is like. Darkness is, generally speaking, something negative. And in particular, when it comes to spiritual things, darkness is very negative and it refers to many negative things one of which is the dimness of eyesight that makes someone who has darkness in their soul if you will unable to see unable to perceive spiritually what's going on proverbs 4 describes such a person as someone who doesn't even know what he's stumbling over when he walks in the darkness consequences come and he doesn't get it he doesn't know why but here the idea is that of 
evil, of an evil system, of evil that's going on, and then people then follow. Light, on the other hand, is about doing what's right, what pleases God. Ephesians 5, verses 8 through 10 says, You were formerly darkness, but now you were light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then he says, For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And then he goes on and says, Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. To live in the light is to try to please God. To live in the darkness is to try to please yourself. Ultimately, that brings pleasure to Satan rather than to God, but it is that you're trying to do what you want. And so the difference should be obvious. Now consider then the nature of this rescue. He says he rescued us from the domain of darkness. And I want you to think about what it looks like to be rescued. Sometimes you're rescued from impending trouble. You're there and somebody is coming after you. You can imagine yourself standing on the street and there's someone who's threatening you and they run and they come after you and they're about to get to you and somebody steps in and they stop them. That would be one form of rescuing. But that's not the language that he uses here. He actually uses a word that describes being rescued out of something that you're already in. You're not just about to get into the darkness. The darkness is not about to overtake you, but we are right in the middle of it. He rescues us out of the domain of darkness. That's where we live. That was our home. That was our whole sphere of being. This is what our life was like. And the worst part about it is, This is exactly the kind of place that we all wanted to be. He rescued us out of the domain of darkness, which is a place that we have always lived, but that we had no problems with. Now, to be sure, nobody who lives in the domain of darkness likes the bad consequences that come from living in the domain of darkness. Again, the wicked doesn't know what he stumbles over, Proverbs 4.19 uh, he, he knows that hard things happen, but he says, why is this happening to me? I don't get this. I don't like that people are mad at me. I don't like that I'm ruining all my relationships. I, I don't like that I'm causing all kinds of trouble for myself. I, I don't get this. I don't know what's going on, but I don't like it. But even that and even those hardships, those outcomes are not enough to make us change the course of our life fundamentally. Now, we may try to clean up some practices. We may try to avoid some of the problems. We may try to mitigate some of the consequences. But at the end of the day, we are not willing to fundamentally change the direction of our life to get out of those circumstances and those consequences because we love the darkness. This is who we were. Ephesians 4 Paul tells, them, tells the Ephesians not to walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Verse 18, being darkened in their understanding. And Jesus said these words in John 3, verses 19 and 20. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? For their deeds were evil. People like the darkness because if they want to do what's evil, they can hide it. We can hide things more easily in the dark at night. And so it is with our deeds. They don't want things to be known. They don't want them to be evaluated. They just want to be able to go along and do whatever they want to do. And so he goes on to say, Jesus does. Everyone who does evil hates the light and doesn't come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Maybe this is you this morning. And you're saying, there are things that I would not want to get rid of because I love the darkness. And I don't want those things to be known because then I can't keep doing them. And so you stay in the dark. You don't want to come to Jesus because Jesus is going to make you deal with this stuff. 
You know that he offers forgiveness of sins, but it's not worth giving up the things that you love to do. Well, if this is true of you, then you're stuck in the domain of darkness and you need to be rescued. This is what we loved. It's true, surely, even in human situations, no doubt that sometimes people don't want to be rescued. And you can imagine that there have been times when even hostages have been rescued or people have come in to rescue them and they say, I don't want to leave. I don't want to go. And they're like Lot, who had to be dragged out of town. And even his own wife looking back at the city in violation of the angel's instructions. This is the way it is with many people, and it may even be the case with you. You say, this will cost me too much. I know I get eternal life, but I don't want to give this stuff up that I know that Jesus requires. Be careful that you don't end up like Lot's wife, loving the darkness and finding the consequences of not being willing to do what God says. Thankfully, God didn't leave us in this position. And by God's grace, those who are Christians have been rescued from this. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 6, 17, Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. God, an outside party, took us and committed us to a different way of thinking, a different doctrine, a different teaching, a different way of life. What we couldn't do and what we would not do, God did. And he transferred us to this new way of thinking about everything. And he says he's so thankful that we became obedient from the heart to that. And having been freed from sin, he says, you became slaves of righteousness. God not only forgave our sin, as we'll see, but he changed the entire domain in which we live, the entire lifestyle that we had. And he did so by changing our hearts. This is not a change, by the way, of physical location. Um, you might still live in the same house. You might still go to the same grocery stores, work the same job, see all the same stuff. But the most important domain of your entire life has been entirely changed. You've been moved from darkness into light. And that's the very purpose of the gospel. The Apostle Paul says in Acts 26, 18, that the gospel was sent to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. God rescued us from the domain of darkness. Before we move on, I want you to consider one more thing, which is what God had to do to rescue us. What does this say about God? It says that he was more powerful than those that he rescued us from. Colossians uh, 2.15, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Some of you might think that you can align yourselves against God, that you can do your thing, but even the ones that rule over you in your deception, even those forces, even those rulers and authorities are less powerful than God. They're more powerful than you, but less powerful than God. So how do you think you'll stack up when you stand before God? The way to make it, the way to get an inheritance, the way to turn out right in the end is to humble yourself before the God that we all must submit to as the one who is all-powerful. God was more powerful than the rulers of the domain of darkness, and God also had to do something about our rebellion. And so this implies as well that he not only rescued us out of being subjugated to other people's rule, but our own hearts were changed. And God brought us into a new way of life. This is what he did for us if we're in Christ. 
So he rescued us from the domain of darkness. But when he rescued us, he didn't just drop us off in the middle of nowhere. He didn't say, well, now you're out of the danger. Let me just set you somewhere sort of neutral, and you can then figure out the rest on your own. No, God took us out of the worst place that we could be, the domain of darkness, and he put us into the best place that we could be. He transferred us, he says, to the kingdom of God's son. Transferred us into the kingdom of God's son. So this is Christ's kingdom, he says, that we have been made part of. His beloved son. Christ is the appointed ruler and possessor of God's kingdom. And it's not just a domain, but the word kingdom is used. It's kind of a more expansive uh, description of a, of a place in which to live than even what the darkness powers ruled over. Uh, it's greater, and it's the thing that God has been doing ever since the beginning of creation. He has been implementing his kingdom plan with Christ ultimately at the center of that. But this is a legitimate domain. It's not just a group of power. It's not just kind of an organization. But this is an actual, uh, an actual legitimate governing entity. It has all the functions of what a domain ought to be. The establishment of the kingdom of God is the grand theme of the Bible. And the Son of God, Jesus, his Son, is central in how God produces and establishes his kingdom upon the earth. And so at the moment of conversion, we move from one spiritual dominion to another. From the domain of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. And we become citizens of a new state. Revelation 1.6 says he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. And so in a certain sense, believers in Christ are a kingdom, are an entire domain. Now, God's plan is bigger than this, and he includes, he intends for his kingdom to include not just people, but territory as well. And there's much in the Bible about that, about actually ruling and actually having a domain upon the earth. But we now are part of a new rulership. We're part of a new system, that which belongs to God's beloved son, Jesus Christ. And what a glorious realm in which to live what was it like when you were under the domain of darkness? You just were dragged to and fro by your desires, by sin, not really knowing what you were doing, maybe thinking you knew what you were doing, but not really knowing what you were doing, living for yourself, living selfishly, not worshiping the maker that created you. But now, under the dominion of Christ, he's a gracious master. He's a gracious ruler. He's one who loves his people. He's one who cares about his people. He is one who will always do good to them and one who proved it by being willing to give himself and to sacrifice himself on the cross to bring them into his kingdom. So we're out from under the oppressive power of darkness and now under a generous and gracious ruler who himself has died to make our citizenship possible. He is, by the way, God's beloved son. That word is not necessary, beloved to identify which kingdom he's talking about but Paul just revels in the fact of the father's love for the son the son is beloved God loves us God loves his people but there is a special peculiar love that the father has for the son and it is appropriate because of the nature of who the son is this is the great one that we belong to and that we serve so God rescued us God rescued us and he gets the credit then he is the one who gets the praise. He's the one who gets the thanks. And this is important for us to understand because we're going to hear even from people's testimonies in a few minutes about the things that happened in their life. And we'll hear about the instrumentation or the, the instrumentality of other people, about how other people were used to bring them to faith. We're going to hear about people's responses and their thoughts and the kinds of things that were going on in their mind 
And so we're going to hear about the work of man, about people doing things and responding and taking action. And Paul even acknowledges that as well in these first parts of his letter. He says in verse 4, your faith and your love. In verse 6, he says, you understood the grace of God in truth. He says in verse 7, you learned. The Colossians did respond to the gospel. They responded. They listened. They humbled themselves. They believed. They did all the right stuff in response. But Paul understands what's going on under the hood. He says, you did all that, but what happened fundamentally? God rescued us. God transferred us. God is the one that we thank and that we praise. Well, there's one other component of what God did. One other thing to qualify us for our heavenly inheritance. And that is this. Believers have been not only rescued, but redeemed. Rescued and redeemed. And we can break this down really into uh, kind of the way of life and the position in which we live, which would be out of the darkness and now into Christ's kingdom. And then our legal standing before God. The position that we have before God, not so much about where we live, but what the heart is of the the basis on which we relate to God. Where do we stand before him? What does God think about us? And that's what verse 14 describes. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul loves this phrase, in Christ. He says, in whom. But so many times in the Bible, he describes being in Christ or in him or in the Son And really, this is the realm of Christians' existence. All our spiritual blessings, in one way or another, are routed through Jesus Christ. It's like the main highway through town when there's only one. And all everybody converges onto this one spot. And the only way to get anywhere is through this one path. And it's the same thing with Jesus. There is no way to get any spiritual blessing outside of Christ. Whatever it is, whether you have it just by knowing him, whether he brings it about at his first coming, whether he brings it at his second coming, whether you can access God the Father now through the Son who is enthroned in heaven. Whatever it is, everything goes through him and in him. God gives us lots of things. But none of them outside of Christ as far as spiritual blessings, spiritual blessings for the believer. All of this he has done in him. And so it is in him that we have, he says, redemption. We have this redemption now. Not just the future redemption that's coming when God makes everything new. But we have it now. And the word refers to uh, really fundamentally the, the concept is that of release, uh, of letting something go. But often, and this is the case here, there's a price that has to be paid to make that happen. So it is with the Christian religion. There's a price to be paid because we did something that demands a penalty. We sinned against God. So redemption is first from our sins. Redemption is from our sins. And he says that redemption, in essence, consists of this one thing. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is not a word that society likes to use often unless they're mocking the idea of it. Oh, this is so sinful. I just shouldn't be doing this. Uh, Or people that are upset that Christians would use the idea of sin. Paul uses the word sin in a broader sense, kind of the singular term, often to describe sin's power. Living in the domain and the dominion of sin. But here he uses the plural. He says sins. And he's identifying that there are actual deeds that we have committed that hold God's wrath over us rightly. 
We are guilty before him because we have sinned against our creator. We've done what is wrong, and we've done so many times. It's our entire way of life, but there are specific ways that this plays out. And because of that, we're guilty, and we need something if we're going to avoid the judgment we deserve, which is forgiveness. Forgiveness. This is man's greatest need in the entire world. Maslow got it wrong. The hierarchy begins and ends with our standing before God. We need forgiveness more than we need anything else. Because if we don't have our sins forgiven, then we'll be punished for them. Rightly so. So the forgiveness of sins is what this is about. And this is what redemption fundamentally consists of. Now, there are a lot of people today preaching a gospel of redemption and of Jesus offering redemption or God offering redemption through Jesus. But it's often redemption from undesirable circumstances. God is going to redeem you from divorce. God's going to redeem you from drug addiction. He offers redemption from low self-esteem, from anxiety, and other things like this. Now, are some of those real problems? Sure. Are these things that God wants us to go through? Not necessarily. Um, are these things that can be dealt with by Jesus' help? Yeah, in many cases, yes. And in fact, Jesus answers all of our problems. He just does so in the way that actually he knows best. God doesn't delight in the suffering of his people, but we have to be clear-eyed about something. And the reason is that, that we need redemption is not because our lives are messed up. We need redemption because we're guilty before God. We need redemption because we have a moral problem. We're not just broken people suffering through this world. We are sinful people rebelling against our God. That's why we need forgiveness. Because we're enslaved to sin and we're guilty of sin. Terribly guilty of sin. And the glory is that in Christ, we have this forgiveness. Can you imagine what it would be like to know nothing of Jesus Christ and to look at your sin problem rightly in light of God's word and to say, what am I going to do about this? Think about the helplessness of this. And too often we can't take this, we just can't appreciate this because often when we learn about our sin, we already know something about Christ and we already kind of have that covering. But just try to put yourself in the shoes of saying, I... I've never heard anything about a way of forgiveness. I just know that I am in trouble, that I'm dead before God. I have no hope. And then God swoops in and says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to send my son into the world. And he is going to bear that penalty that you deserve, even though he did nothing wrong. And he is going to literally die suffering and anguish on a cross so that you can have your sins forgiven. This is the message of the gospel. Fundamentally, there is nothing more central to what the gospel accomplishes than the forgiveness of sins. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. You need to have your sins forgiven, but by God's grace, the message of Christ is you can have your sins forgiven. All of them wiped away completely, completely gone. This is what baptism pictures. Baptism does not accomplish the forgiveness of sins. Water does not wash away anything. But it pictures a cleansing and a washing away of what people have done. And this is part of the testimony of what baptism is all about. And so if you're here and you've believed in Christ, this is what you have. And if you haven't, then this is what he offers. And Acts 10.43 says of Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that through him, 
everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. What does it require to become forgiven before God? It doesn't take having the same testimony as every single person that you'll hear today. It doesn't require getting better and improving your life. And it certainly doesn't require getting yourself out of the the domain of darkness and starting to do some good works in the light. You can't do that. And you're still guilty if you do. What it requires is turning from your evil ways and putting your hope in Christ and believing in his name. This is how your sins come to be forgiven. And this is what he says here in verse 14. And he says, uh, we have the forgiveness of sins. One more note on this as we close is that this forgiveness of sins comes, in fact, through the blood of Christ. Ephesians 1, 7, through the blood of Christ. He says there in a passage being written at the same time to a different group of people, in him we have redemption through his blood. This is what offers us this redemption. This is what accomplishes this for us. This shows us how dark our situation was and how guilty we were and how much cause we have to celebrate the salvation that we have been given. And so as we picture baptism, this is what we're celebrating. Not the cause of the forgiveness of sins. Baptism doesn't make anyone a Christian. Baptism testifies that someone is a Christian. It says, This is who I am. This is who I'm identifying with. And this picture is meant to show not only that we have our sins forgiven, but it also is analogous to us dying in Christ spiritually and then being raised to life with him. God purifies us from a guilty record through our faith, and he gives us a new heart. So there's nothing magic about the water. Nothing happens to a person directly because they go under and come back up. But it is a message of the magnificent, way better than anything magic, magnificent message of God's grace in Christ. Believers are rescued by the gospel. They are redeemed by the gospel. This has been done, and you can have it, and you can be thankful for it if you do. Let's pray, and then we will hear from some people telling about what Christ has done. God, thank you that you have given us redemption. Thank you that you've rescued us. And I pray for those who don't know Christ that they would see the wonderful offer of salvation that he provides and the new life that is out of the darkness and into the light. And that they would in fact come to you through Christ to receive that salvation. We pray in his name. Amen.